Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 19, Nehemiah, chapter 13, the end of our study of Nehemiah. Today we're going to wrap up our study of Nehemiah and in doing so it will bring us essentially to the end of the Old Testament from a chronological perspective. This book at its closing brings us near to 400 BC. The only other writings that are considered inspired that cover the period after 400 BC up until the book of Matthew and the book of and the birth of Christ are the apocrypha and even these are considered by the Jews and by most Christian branches as to be of a lesser inspiration than the 66 books that we find in the typical Protestant Bible Therefore, after centuries of debate in the early 1800s, the British and American Bible societies decided to remove the books of the Apocrypha from Protestant Bibles altogether. But doing this created a four-century historical gap between the closing of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament. And they labeled this newly created gap the silent period. Of course, as I've explained on a few occasions, that period is anything but silent. It deals with the end of the Persian Empire, followed by the rise of the Greek and then the Roman Empires. So if you followed Torah class from the beginning, then you started with creation in Genesis. We moved on to the establishment of the Hebrew people with Abraham, then to their enslavement in Egypt, their rescue and trek to the promised land of Canaan, the establishment of a sovereign Hebrew nation under David, its dissolution through civil war into two separately governed kingdoms, both kingdoms eventually being exiled by God to foreign lands due to their rebellion against him, and then finally, in Ezra and now Nehemiah, the return of the, of the inhabitants, the Jews, of one of those two kingdoms, Judah, to their homeland. It's taken us over ten years to cover this territory. Ten years. So it's easy to lose continuity. And in order to help us connect it all, to see these many centuries of Bible history horizon to horizon starting next week we're going to go on to a relatively brief few week study starting with Abraham that will take us to the end of the Old Testament then follow the progress of the Hebrews through the New Testament and then finally see how it leads to modern day 21st century Israel and after that we'll study what I consider to be a wonderful bridge that connects the Old and New Testaments, the Tanakh and the Brit Hadashah, in a very Hebrew way. And that's the book of Acts. Well, last week in Nehemiah 13, we closed at verse 14. Now, chapter 13 is about the return of Nehemiah from Babylon. 
after he had been summoned to Artaxerxes' palace. Nehemiah had been allowed to stay in Judah for 12 years before being recalled and he had accomplished basically the impossible. And before he left, Nehemiah in cooperation with Ezra had instituted many reforms to both the religious institution and the lay sectors of Jewish society in Judah. Now Jerusalem was now in an upswing economically since the defensive wall and many homes had been rebuilt. The city's population had been fortified by means of a lottery in which one out of ten Jewish families in Judah were required to relocate to Jerusalem. And all the Jews, leaders and common citizens, had sworn an oath never to abandon the temple of God. Now from a practical standpoint, this meant to support it properly with their incomes. Because otherwise, those priests and Levites who depended on those tithes for a living would have to abandon their posts to survive in some other way. Unfortunately, it seems that in no time after Nehemiah left, society regressed on every level. The first disheartening thing we read about is in verse 4, when we learn that a priest who was in charge of the temple storehouses had become related by marriage to Tovia, a foreigner, and an arch enemy of Nehemiah. This treasonous relationship led to the priest Eliashiv giving some of the temple storerooms to this Tovia for his personal use. Now these rooms had been designated as storerooms for the food brought in to support the Levites and the priests. Apparently that had something to do with the next thing we learned, which is the lay folks stopped tithing. And here we see the upside and the downside of leadership. When Nehemiah was here, he provided an exemplary example of godly Torah obedient living. He practiced what he preached. But when he left, those who had authority and were supposed to take over the leadership, such as the high priest, now this was another but different Elyashi from the one who was running the temple storehouses, showed that they had no business trying to lead others as they committed the very wrongs that they had only a few months earlier spoken against. Now no doubt, while attending to the king up in Babylon, Nehemiah got word that everything back in Judah was unraveling. Now it's hard to know how long Nehemiah was away. We get no time markers. However, when we see the description of some of the things that were happening, they seem like things that that would take time to develop. Couldn't have happened in, in weeks or maybe even a few months. I suspect that he was gone for probably three years, maybe a little bit more, but that's my speculation. And if we were to further speculate on something that isn't really stated, but it begs us to use some common sense. What was it that started the ball rolling downhill 
so fast after Nehemiah's departure? How did things get so out of control so quickly and so seriously? In my view, it was no different than in modern times. Turn away from God's Word and very quickly confusion takes over. James 1, 23 and 24 For whoever hears the Word but doesn't do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror who looks at himself but then goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. I think this must be the case because that is the tone that the editor of Nehemiah sets and it is because history shows us that while we'll get some bad national leaders from time to time who make bad decisions, who try to lead the people wrongly, if the religious institutions are working as they should and they are teaching the people to discern right from wrong, then soon these bad leaders are replaced by better ones. But when the religious institutions cease doing their jobs by teaching God's word, then bad leadership goes unchecked. Because the people look to them as what must be the examples of civil behavior and morality since they know no better. And as we read Nehemiah 13, we see the religious leadership has failed and in its wickedness quickly spread to every level of Jewish society in the same way that a line of dominoes collapses from the impetus of the first one leaning against the next one. A godly society cannot be led astray by bad civil leadership unless the religious leadership fails to do its job. And when a society fails, the first thing needed to restore it is for the religious leadership to step up and reestablish the preeminence of the Lord and His principles and His commandments. That is why Ezra came before Nehemiah. And he came to rebuild the temple and to reform the priesthood. Now, as we look around ourselves in the 21st century... We see the same pattern at play once again. Western society has collapsed into confusion. We have had poor civil leadership for a long time now. And with each election cycle, it seems, we descend further and further into chaos and into immorality, hoping the next leader can give us both everything we want and also to fix everything so we feel more secure. How'd this happen? A failure at the pulpit. Our Christian institutions long ago adopted man-made traditions, laid aside the commandments of God as our governing behavioral and moral platform. Each succeeding generation of Christian and Jewish traditions are made more compatible with whatever direction our civil leadership wishes to take us rather than acting as a touchstone and a backstop 
rather than teaching God's word to believing congregations to give them truth and light and discernment, the new goal has become prosperity, popularity, and peace and love at all costs. And peace and love undergo constant redefinition. Our best-known Christian leaders appear on television and demand to fly around in private jets, have multiple mansions, promise vast wealth to those who will follow them and their plan. The goal of their vision is not to be a check of civil leadership and societal values. Their goal is to win the approval of each successive administration of civil leadership and the sheep that follow them blindly. Upon Nehemiah's exit, Judah collapsed into deprivation and into sin once again because the temple authorities collapsed into deprivation and sin. The West especially has become a cesspool of immorality and spiritual darkness because our Judeo-Christian religious leadership has led people into immorality and in spiritual darkness. And naturally, all of this has happened in the name of God. Let those who have ears listen. Let's move on to the conclusion of Nehemiah. Open your Bibles to chapter 13. We're going to start at verse 15. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1149. 11:49 if you have a complete Jewish Bible, Nehemiah 13 chapter Nehemiah 13 verse 15. During this time I saw in Judah some people who were treading wine presses on Shabbat also bringing in heaps of grain, loading donkeys with it. Likewise, wine and grapes, figs, all kinds of loads. And they were bringing them into Jerusalem on the day of Shabbat. Now on the day when they were planning to sell the food, I warned them not to. There were also living there people from Zor who brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on Shabbat to the people in Judah, even in Jerusalem. Now I disputed with the nobles of Judah, demanding of them, what is this terrible thing you're doing? Profaning the day of Shabbat. Didn't your ancestors do this? Didn't our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Yet you're bringing still more fury against Israel by profaning Shabbat. So when the gates of Jerusalem began to grow dark before Shabbat, I ordered the doors shut. I ordered that they not be reopened until after Shabbat. I put some of my servants in charge of the gates to see to it that no loads be brought in on Shabbat. The merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem once or twice till I warned them, Why are you spending the night by the wall? Do it again. I'll use force against you. From then on they stopped coming on Shabbat. Then I ordered the Levites to purify themselves, to come and guard the gates, in order to keep the day of Shabbat holy. My God, remember this too for me, and have mercy on me in keeping with the greatness of your grace. Now also during this time, I saw the Judeans who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. 
and their children who spoke half in the language of Ashdod and couldn't speak in the language the Judeans spoke but only in the language of each people. And I disputed with them and I cursed them and I beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them swear by God you will not give your daughters as wives for their sons or take their daughters as wives for your sons or for yourselves. Wasn't it by doing these things that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? There was no king like him among the nations and God loved him and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused him even, caused even him to sin. Are we to give in to you and let you continue in this very great evil breaking faith with our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Yoyada, the son of Eliashiv, the Kohen Hagadol, the high priest, had become son-in-law to Sanvalat, the Horoni. So I drove him out of my presence. My God, remember them, because they have defiled the office of priest in the covenant of the priests and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them of everything foreign, and I had the priests and the Levites resume their duties, each one in his appointed task. I also made provision for the delivery of wood at stated times and for the first fruits. My God, remember me favorably. It is fascinating how the central issue of Shabbat has been to Ezra and Nehemiah and none more so than in the final passages to finish this book. It seems that observance of the Sabbath is the thermometer that records the temperature of Jewish society. And why wouldn't that be? Shabbat was instituted by the Lord as a divine sign. Listen to Exodus 31, 13-17. Tell the people of Israel, you are to observe my Shabbats, for this is a sign between me and you throughout all your generations, so that you will know that I am Adonai who set you apart for me. Therefore you are to keep my Shabbat, because it is set apart for you. Everyone who treats it as ordinary must be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, it's to be, he's to be cut off from his people. On six days work will get done, but the seventh day is Shabbat for complete rest. Set apart for Adonai. Whoever does any work on the day of Shabbat must be put to death. The people of Israel are to keep the Shabbat, to observe Shabbat throughout all their generations as a perpetual covenant. It's a sign between me and the people of Israel forever. Because in six days Adonai made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he stopped working and he rested. Shabbat is the sign of a people set apart for God. Our observance of Shabbat signals that we are operating in harmony with God. The lack of observance of Shabbat signals we've fallen away from Him. But as I'm regularly asked, so how do we observe Shabbat? Although I feel like I've covered it before, and it has sadly become a bone of contention, between Christians and Jewish believers, I want to take a moment to reiterate something I said a few weeks ago. The first thing we must understand is what Shabbat is in God's eyes 
and then next what it is not because these two things are constantly confused as a result of man-made doctrines of both Judaism and Christianity Shabbat is the ordained day of rest there is no other definition of Sabbath in the Bible Exodus 20 8 through 11 remember the day Shabbat to set it apart for God you have six days to labor and do all your work but the seventh day is a Shabbat for Adonai your God on it you are not to do any kind of work not you, your son or daughter your male or female slave your livestock not the foreigner staying with you inside the gates to your property for in six days Adonai made heaven and earth the sea everything in them but on the seventh day he rested that's why Adonai blessed that day Shabbat and he separated it for himself now we could go through every mention of the Sabbath in the Bible and I have and there is one thing you will never see Sabbath defined as the day of worship Sabbath is not the day of worship it is the day of rest in fact especially in the Old Testament we simply won't find any connection between Sabbath and worship that of course isn't to say that we shouldn't worship on on Sabbath in fact I can't think of a better day to worship God than on Sabbath And the Bible designates no day as a better or a more required day to worship than any other day. And in point of fact, despite some believers thinking otherwise, Judaism has not declared Shabbat as the official Jewish day of worship. That's not true. The waters concerning Sabbath observance have been further muddied because in the 4th century A.D., the Roman Church declared two groundbreaking Christian doctrines. First, that Shabbat is hereby abolished. Not changed, abolished. And second, in its place, there would be an official day of Christian worship. And that day would be the first day of the week, Sunday. But just because some wrong-minded Christian bishops and the emperor of Rome 1,600 years ago tried to assert divine authority that they didn't have doesn't somehow mean that worshiping on Sunday is wrong. What is wrong is to declare the Sabbath is abolished and to declare Sunday as an exclusive day of worship in the same way it's wrong for others to declare Saturday as the exclusive day of worship. Such a thing exists only in the minds of men, not that of God. And it has caused terrible contentiousness that's just not warranted. This is why here in Nehemiah and in a couple of other places I'll show to you, that the issue is rest versus continuing normal work on Shabbat. Not whether one goes somewhere to an assembly to worship on the seventh day 
So whether Jew or Gentile Christian in any age, as a believer of the God of Israel, observing the seventh day, Shabbat, as a set-apart day of ceasing from our normal labors, that is the sign of trust and obedience and allegiance to Jehovah. And it's not a tradition. It's a commandment of God. Thus in verse 15 of Nehemiah 13, we hear of some Jews who are operating wine presses, loading up donkeys with grain and grapes and figs and other produce, obviously for the purpose of taking it to the market. And they were doing it on Shabbat. Now, in fact, they were intent on bringing those goods to sell in Jerusalem on Shabbat. Now, this not only violated the direct Torah commandment not to do so, but it also broke the terms of that vow that the citizens of Judah had made just a few years earlier. Let me help you recall it back in Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 32. If the peoples of the lands bring merchandise or food to sell on Shabbat, we'll not buy from them on Shabbat or on a holy day. On the other hand, there were also foreigners who wanted to sell on Shabbat. Here they're described as people from Zor. There was evidently a colony of Tyrians who lived in Judah. Tyrians, we also could call them Zorians, were Phoenicians. They were from Phoenicia. They were famous shippers, traders. They had for centuries established far-flung trading networks. And they were commercial specialists. Nothing wrong with that. And it only made sense that they would want an outpost here in Jerusalem. The problem is that the Jews had decided not to buy or sell on, on Sabbath because they had determined this represented regular work. Yet, was it work to buy? It would only seem normal work to sell. Nonetheless, this was the decision that these Jews had come to and they vowed to uphold it and now in no time they reversed themselves and they did otherwise. And this infuriated Nehemiah. And as early as the time of the prophet Amos, Amos, we find that it had become too hard for many Hebrews to forego work on Sabbath. It just seemed like an interruption in their workflow. And to their minds, it interfered with profit-making and productivity. I can sympathize. When I first became convicted that Shabbat was not optional, it probably took close to a year before I could get over the feeling of being antsy and unproductive. And as my wife will attest, my temperament is such that there's little worse for me than wasting time. That day represents one-seventh of a week. I had things to do. And it just killed me to accomplish nothing because it was Sabbath. But now I love Shabbat. I can't wait for it to get here. It's like stepping into a long, long, warm shower after several days of hard labor. Listen to Amos, Amos 8, 4 and 7, 4 through 7. 
Listen, you who swallow the needy and destroy the poor of the land. You say, well, when Rosh Hodesh, new moon, start of the month, is over, so we can market our grain and Shabbat so we can sell wheat. You measure the grain in a small ephah, the silver in heavy shekels, fixing the scale so that you can cheat buying the needy for money and the poor for a pair of shoes, sweeping up the refuse of the wheat to sell. Adonai swears by Jacob's pride, I will forget none of their deeds ever. See, it's clear from the words of our passage in Nehemiah 13 that this attitude we just heard Amos railing against was the same as some in Judah had concerning Shabbat. And it is also self-evident the priesthood did nothing to stop it. But the question also comes, is Sabbath only for Hebrews? Or even only for worshipers of the God of Israel? My answer to that question is, it's intended for everyone ever born. On several occasions I pointed out that Sabbath was created, it it was instituted rather, at creation. Not at Mount Sinai. The law at Mount Sinai was not to establish Shabbat. It was to remember the Shabbat that had begun long ago by God at creation. And at creation, there was no separated nations or races or people groups of any kind. Shabbat's for everybody. Genesis 2.1 Thus the heavens and the earth were finished along with everything in them and on the seventh day God finished with His work which He had made so He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had made. God blessed the seventh day. He separated it as holy because on that day God rested from all of His work which He would created so that it itself could produce. And to back up this idea of Shabbat as being seen by the Lord is kind of a separate issue from the Torah law, let's look briefly at another passage. In Ezekiel 20, verses 11 through 13. I gave them my laws and I showed them my rulings. If a person obeys them, he will have life through them. I gave them my Shabbats as a sign between me and them, so that they would know that I had an eye on the one who makes them holy. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the desert. They didn't live by my laws. They rejected my rulings, which if a person does, he'll have life through them. Moreover, they greatly profaned my Shabbats. Then I said I'd pour out my fury on them in the desert in order to destroy them. Now notice how the Lord speaks about the laws, rulings, and Shabbat. Each is a sort of separate category of observance. And that is because Shabbat was given to mankind in general, not only to Israel, or to just those who worship the God of Israel. Shabbat is a big deal to God. Big deal. So it ought to be a big deal to us. It sure was to Nehemiah. So continuing in Nehemiah 13, 17, we find Nehemiah arguing with the aristocrats of Judah and telling them he's not about to allow anything to occur that could defile the Shabbat because here they are only recently back from exile still trying to put their lives back together and their homeland is being ruled by a foreign potentate and this is all because Israel broke God's laws and in addition profaned the Sabbath and they're doing it again 
being a man of action, not just words, Nehemiah orders Levites to take over control of the gates of Jerusalem on Sabbath. On the sixth day, as the sun gets low and the shadows grow long, the Levites are to instruct the gatekeepers to close the city gates. They are keeping the merchants out so that there will be no buying and selling on Shabbat. But that wasn't enough for Nehemiah. The sellers still hung around outside the gates. So Nehemiah told them to leave. And if they didn't, he'd use violent force against them if necessary. Nehemiah took Shabbat seriously. He knew firsthand the catastrophic consequences upon the Jews for violating God's Shabbat. And as long as he could do something about it, he wasn't going to let it happen again. Then starting in verse 23, the old issue of Jews marrying foreign women surfaces again. And although Nehemiah chastised those who did this terrible thing, and he made the other Judeans promise never to give their sons and daughters in marriage to foreigners, there was no dissolution of marriages ordered as happened back in the book of Ezra. Now interestingly, there are three specific people groups of foreigners described here. People from Ashdod, from Ammon, and from Moab. And once again to be clear, this issue is not about... Hear this please. This issue is not about foreign-born people who converted to Judaism and then married into a Jewish family. This is all about foreign-born people who married into Jewish families but who stayed identified to their foreign nations and to their foreign gods. What is also interesting is the focus on the children who were the products of these illicit unions who spoke only in the foreign tongue of their mothers. Ashdod was Philistine territory, so the language was Philistine. Now the languages of Moab and Ammon were Semitic, and there would not have been a great deal of difference between that and what the common Jews spoke, almost certainly Aramaic. But the language of the temple, well that was Hebrew, also a cousin language of Aramaic. So just the presence of these foreign languages upset Nehemiah to no end because it was further proof that everything that had been accomplished so painfully in some cases, many years earlier, to separate the Jews from the pagans, it was all being undone. In fact, we have Nehemiah depicted as actually getting violent by beating some of these violators up by pulling out the hair of others to shame them. And when we're told that Nehemiah cursed them, it doesn't mean what we think of it, using bad language or swearing at them. The word curse is meant in a social religious context. That is, he did something very Middle Eastern in nature. He issued a curse against them. He vowed that something bad would happen to them caused by God for allowing their sons and daughters to marry foreigners. Now, Nehemiah knew his history. And he reminds them that even King Solomon did this wicked thing of marrying foreign women, and although God loved him, nevertheless, these foreign women made Shlomo sin, 
And that sin compelled God in His justice to act severely against Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 11 starting at verse 1. King Shlomo loved many foreign women besides the daughter of Pharaoh. There were women from the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites and Hittites, nations about which Adonai had said to the people of Israel, you are not to go among them or they among you because they'll turn your hearts away towards their gods. But Solomon was deeply attached to them by his love. He had 700 wives, all of them princesses, 300 concubines and his wives turned his heart away. For when Shlomo became old, his wives turned his heart away towards other gods so that he was not wholehearted with Adonai his God as David his father had been. For Solomon followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonites, Milcom, the abomination of the uh, Ammonites, Thus Shlomo uh, Shlomo did what was evil in Adonai's view and did not fully follow Adonai as David his father had done. Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on a hill on the front of Jerusalem. Another one for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. This is what he did for all of his foreign wives who then offered and sacrificed to their gods. So Adonai grew angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from Adonai, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had given him orders concerning this matter that he should not follow other gods, but he didn't obey Adonai's orders. So Adonai said to Solomon, Since this is what has been in your mind, and you haven't kept my covenant and my regulations which I ordered you to obey, I will tear the kingdom from you and I'll give it to your servant. Well, back in Nehemiah in verse 28, Nehemiah relates that Yoyoda, the son of the high priest Eliashiv, married a foreign girl. In fact, he married a daughter of Sanvalat, another of those antagonists who came against Nehemiah and the Jews and tried to prevent them from building the wall. See, this takes us back full circle to our earlier lesson, earlier in our lesson, where we discussed that what we're witnessing here and all of these sins is that it was a top-down affair. The leadership did these detestable things first. Then the people followed suit. Nehemiah banished Eliashiv's son and daughter-in-law from Jerusalem. And then he issued what amounted to a curse against them. My God, remember them, because they've defiled the office of priest and the covenant of the priests and Levites. It's hard to overstate how serious this matter of intermarriage was, especially in the high priest family. One of his sons would have succeeded him. Then, one of his grandsons after that. It is a nightmare scenario that the high priest of Israel would have been the product of an illicit marriage. So Nehemiah was quite right to order this son away. Partly, no doubt, to make an example of him. Well, this chapter and book ends with a brief summary of all of Nehemiah's reforms. 
Verses 30 and 31 explain that first and foremost he purified the priesthood and the Levites from foreign influences. Then he put these servants of God back to work in their Torah-ordained tasks. He saw to it that even the lowliest task, which was to provide wood for the altar fire, that even this was accomplished because while it might have seemed like a menial job, there was nothing more important than the operation of the altar so that sins might be atoned for. Nehemiah well knew that making Israel distinct from all other nations and people was paramount. Not better, not superior, just set apart. God had chosen Israel to be His people. Just as those of us who are not born of Israel may be included as among His chosen by being grafted in through faith in Israel's Messiah, Yeshua of Nazareth. We too have been set apart by God. We are to behave as set apart. If believers should ever become completely indistinguishable from the rest of the world, we could no longer function as God's servant. Which is the most favored status and occupation anyone could ever hope for. Leviticus 20, 20, verse 26 says this, Rather, you people are to be holy for me, because I am Adonai, and I am holy, and I have set you apart from all other peoples so that you can belong to me. This ends our study of Nehemiah and our long journey through the Torah and the Tanakh, the Old Testament.